Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Monday, July 25th, 2022. So this is the second week of the new show. I hope everybody had a good weekend, and I will catch you up on the big foreign policy news stories of the weekend. Um, the first one here at the top, a congressional delegation in Kiev wants the U.S. to send military advisors to Ukraine. So there is a bipartisan group of House lawmakers that visited the Ukrainian capital over the weekend. And while they were there, two members of the delegation told Fox News that they support the idea of the Pentagon sending military advisors to Ukraine, which would mark a significant escalation in the U.S. role in the war. So after meeting with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, Rep. Michael Waltz, a Republican from, from Florida, said that he supports this idea of sending military advisors to Ukraine to oversee weapons shipments and help with intelligence and logistics. Waltz said, quote, it could be contracted, it could be civilian, but it could be military as well. I don't think anybody's advocating for any American military on the front line, but helping with logistics, planning those operations, integrating the intelligence is incredibly important right now, end quote. Uh, Rep. Mikey Sherrill, a Democrat from New Jersey, because of course this is by, you know, a bipartisan uh, issue here that both parties can get behind is escalating the, the role, the U.S. role in this war. So Cheryl, she also expressed support for sending military advisors to track weapons shipments. She said, quote, it would be good to have a logistics officer here to make sure that we understand and track the weaponry that we're sending, end quote. So last month, the New York Times reported that there is CIA personnel operating in Ukraine to, to direct intelligence sharing with Kiev. The report said that there are also commandos in the country from the UK, France, Canada, and Lithuania to help facilitate the transfer of Western arms, but there's currently no known U.S. military presence on the ground. So the fact that there are CIA operatives in Ukraine, I mean, it wasn't really a surprise. Um, kind of the bigger news was the fact that they 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 went public with it in this report in the New York Times, and you have to wonder why. There's a lot of questions about why they would they would do that at that time. But no known presence of U.S. Special Operations Forces or anything doesn't mean that they're not there, but um, we don't know if they are. But sending you know military advisors, the war in Vietnam infamously started with the U.S. sending military, sending advisors. So it could be the first in a long line of escalations. And we've seen that the U.S. support for this war, it's just one escalation after another. Um, and now Rep. Adam Smith, he's the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. He was also part of this delegation. I didn't see any quotes from him supporting uh, this idea of sending military advisors because that would be significant because he's pretty he's a pretty influential uh, Democrat when it comes to foreign policy. But he, I have seen him. I just saw kind of a basic quote from him saying that the U.S. has to keep supporting Ukraine. But um, right now, it's just kind of these two. Uh, I haven't heard of these two, Cheryl and Waltz, personally. I don't know how influential they are. Let's hope that they're not very influential and that this idea doesn't get much traction. But one thing I have seen a lot of the hawks predict, a lot of the think tankers predict, is that they think the next escalation, besides sending more advanced weaponry, would be the U.S. sending contractors to Ukraine to maintain all of this advanced equipment that we're sending. 
And now, especially if we've seen reports, we've seen officials say that the U.S. is considering sending aircraft like F-15s, F-16s to Ukraine, or maybe some of the U.S.'s European allies are thinking about sending their uh, advanced fighter jets to Ukraine. If that happens, first, they would have to train Ukrainian pilots for months. But if that happens, then I could definitely see contractors being sent in to maintain these planes like uh, the U.S. does in Saudi Arabia, for example. It maintains the Saudi Air Force. And without that support, Saudi Arabia wouldn't have an air force and they wouldn't be able to bomb Yemen. So it's very crucial to that war. Um, so the next one here, Russia says its attack on Odessa port only hit military targets. So Russia on Sunday, they Russia launched an attack on Odessa on Saturday, and which came a day after Russia and Ukraine signed a deal to facilitate the export of Ukrainian grain. The deal was signed in Istanbul. It was signed between Russia, Ukraine, Turkey, and the UN. And the idea of the deal is that Ukrainian ships will escort these grain vessels out of Ukrainian ports, which are heavily mined. So the Ukrainian vessels escort them out. And during that time, Russia agreed you know, not to attack the ports, not to attack certain facilities in the ports. I don't know the exact details of the agreement. I haven't seen it written out. But so they signed this deal. And then the next day, Russia bombs Odessa, which is one of the ports where they're trying to get grain out of. So, you know, of course, the headlines were that Russia violated the deal. Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, said they violated the deal, even though he had no nothing to do with brokering the deal. He doesn't probably even know the details of the deal. But um, what was interesting is that Ukraine kind of downplayed it, this strike. Uh, We had Zelensky call it barbarism and say that it was an example of how they can never have talks with Russia. But Ukrainian military officials said, oh, the strike did little damage and it didn't hit any grain infrastructure, which I thought was interesting because a lot of times they they have an interest kind of to exaggerate um, Russian strikes. So I thought it was interesting that they didn't with this one and Ukrainian officials, their infrastructure minister said that they're still prepared to go through with this grain deal. And the exports, they haven't tried yet. They haven't started this yet. Turkey says they're going to try to launch it as soon as possible. They started a coordination center in Istanbul where there's going to be representatives from Russia, Ukraine, Turkey, and the UN. And they're going to work on, they're going to oversee the operation from there of the ships leaving. They're supposed to inspect some of the ships for arms and stuff. And I think, from what I understand, it they're going to get it started in a couple weeks. Um, it's not going to be started right away. But for their part, anyway, this is what Russia claimed, is that their strike on Odessa only hit military targets, including a stockpile of U.S.-provided uh, anti-ship harpoon missiles, which is interesting because this came just a few days after Ukrainian officials were saying that they were going to use these U.S.-provided harpoon missiles to start targeting Russia's black fleet. Um, Black Sea Fleet, and then we see this strike. Um, But still, it seems like the grain deal is still on because, you know, this kind of, I'm sure a lot of people maybe thought it wasn't because of the headlines over this strike, but it seems like all sides are still saying that they're going to implement this deal. So hopefully that goes through. Uh, The next one, uh, Hungary's Orban says U.S.-Russia peace talks needed to end the war in Ukraine. So this is interesting. Hungarian. Oh, I said, see, this is good for me to read because I get to fix my typos. I said Hungarian President Viktor Orban, but he's the prime minister. 
Um, so on Saturday, he called for peace talks between the U.S. and Russia to end the war in Ukraine and said the EU needs a new approach to the conflict. Quote, Orban said, quote, a new strategy is needed, which should focus on peace negotiations instead of trying to win the war. End quote. So he said this during a speech in Romania, and he said that the only way for the war to end is is for uh, the U.S. and Russia to hold talks because he said that Russia wants security guarantees that only Washington can give. And if you remember, in the months leading up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the U.S. and Russia were engaged in talks on security proposals that were put forward by Moscow. And chief among Russia's demands was a guarantee that Ukraine would never join NATO. That's what they wanted. They wanted a promise that Ukraine will never join NATO. But the U.S. refused to make that promise, even though it was clear that the, the alliance would not admit Kiev. And I included a quote here from Zelensky from back in March because it was pretty interesting and I think very revealing. Um, he told he said this in an interview with CNN that he asked at one point, not sure exactly when, he asked NATO to say clearly if Ukraine can join or not because it was always like, yeah, they can join eventually. We always have an open door, but they would never say, okay, this is how Ukraine gets on its path to membership. So this is what Zelensky said the response was, quote, the response was very clear. You're not going to be a NATO member, but publicly the doors will remain open, end quote. So they know Ukraine's never not going to join NATO. Biden said it himself. It's not going to happen in the near term, as he put it, not for years, decades to come is what other officials said. But they still wouldn't give Russia this guarantee to at least try to prevent the war. Would it have prevented the war? We don't know, but they could have tried. <laughs> Uh, and they didn't try. Um, so Orban also said that the EU to the that the EU approach to the war has failed as European governments are collapsing, quote, like dominoes, end quote. Uh, and we've seen sanctions backfire. Orban said, quote, we are sitting in a car that has a puncture in all four tires. It is absolutely clear that the war cannot be won in this way, end quote. So um, we've seen, I've talked talked about a lot last week about how European economies are really suffering from this sanctions campaign, from these soaring energy prices. And now they're dealing, they're preparing for Russia to cut the EU off from its gas supply totally, which they, according to estimates, they need to reduce their gas consumption by 20% to make it through this winter to prepare for it. And that's really significant. And Hungary would hurt the most from getting cut off by Russian gas. According to the IMF, they estimate that if they lose all access to Russian gas, um, Hungary's gross domestic product could decline by over 6%. Now, Orban, as it's clear from these statements, he, he doesn't really fall in line with the rest of the EU. He's more friendly with Russia. You know, he, he was calling in this saying that the EU shouldn't pick a side. They should be neutral and try to push for peace talks. Um, which is a pretty radical position for an EU leader to have. Um, so I'm not really sure, sure if Hungary will get cut off by Russia. Um, he got, Orban got an exemption from the Russian oil ban. The EU agreed to phase out all Russian oil by the end of this year. And he was able to secure a exemption for Hungary so Hungary could keep buying Russian oil. And part of the reason is because Hungary is landlocked and they get all their oil, most of their oil pipelined in from Russia, while other EU countries have the option to get more shipped in from their ports. 
but the landlocked countries don't really have, can't get those alternatives that quick. And it would take Hungary, you know, years and years to get oil infrastructure to be able to get enough piped in from other countries and other areas. So um, that's why he got that exemption. But yeah, it's just interesting to see, uh, you know, a European leader say something like that. And the next one here, this is from Kyle Anzalone. He wrote this on Friday. This was Zelensky. Uh, he warned that Russia would capitalize on any ceasefire to give its troops rest and to re-equip its military. So Zelensky said he rejected the idea of having any ceasefire with Russia. He said that freezing the conflict basically would give Russia time to rest. And then in a few years, they would launch another invasion. So this is a sign that this war isn't ending anytime soon because Zelensky and other Ukrainian leaders keep maintaining that their goal is to push Russia out of all the territory that it's conquered since Russia invaded on February 24th. They're saying they're going to drive Russia out of Crimea, which Russia has controlled since 2014. I mean, this stuff would take a major military offensive. I would actually think that Ukraine might benefit from a pause if it really wanted to launch this offensive because, you know, we're, they're taking heavy losses right now in the fighting in the Donbass. Um, so, but yeah, and, and we've seen Biden say and other U.S. officials say that the U.S. is going to support Ukraine for years to come so they can beat Russia in this war. So it's just, there's no end in sight, uh, really. So now we're uh, getting over to China and more Nancy Pelosi. She's been in the news a lot lately. And this is very interesting because there was a report last week that said Pelosi was preparing a trip. She's going to go to Taiwan in August. And we've seen kind of some backlash from the Biden administration. Biden said last week that the military thinks it's a bad idea. And then this is the Washington Post reported this on Saturday, that Biden administration officials increasingly fear that Pelosi's planned trip to Taiwan next month risks sparking a major crisis across the Taiwan Strait. So now we have these administration officials speaking anonymously to the Washington Post that they feel China would view the visit as a purposeful provocation. Uh, One administration official said the military and intelligence officials have tried to explain the risks associated with the trip. So it sounds like from this article that they're trying to convince Pelosi and her team that this is a bad idea. Um, So now... For me, it's hard to believe that Biden couldn't pressure. I mentioned this in the article because it's tough to believe that Biden wouldn't be able to pressure Pelosi not to go, considering how closely aligned they are on just about everything. But the impression that these officials speaking to the Post tried to make was that, you know, Biden can't stop her, which I thought was pretty interesting. It makes me kind of suspicious that maybe they're they're kind of laying this groundwork to dodge some blame if she does go and things get hairy i I don't know um but they uh because they they told the post that it's unlikely china would understand that biden can't order pelosi not to go i mean it it's unlikely i don't understand that that he can't do that um and they quoted a chinese official that actually spoke with a chinese official which is rare that they kind of give china's side of the story in the washington post um This official said, quote, the U.S. side has the ability to to stop these clowns from performing in Taiwan, but over and over it chooses not to, end quote. So we've seen congressional delegations to Taiwan have really increased in recent years. 
Um, and China usually responds by doing some military drills around the island. But this seems like it's different. They're warning that they could do something more. Uh, the Financial Times reported on Saturday that China had issued a stark private warning to the Biden administration about Pelosi's trip. They kind of renewed their warning. And the report said that the warnings were significantly stronger than the threats that Beijing has made in the past. Um, so the last ta- major Taiwan Strait crisis, known as the third Taiwan Strait crisis, took place in 1995 to 96. It was sparked by the U.S. giving a visa to former Taiwanese President Li Tang Hu. Um, China responded by launching missile and rocket tests very close to Taiwan, and um, the tensions lasted, you know, through those through those two years, um, 95 and 96. Um, The other Taiwan Strait crises happened in the 50s, and they involved direct U.S. military invention against China to stop these attacks on uh, islands near Taiwan. So you could just see people, more Americans kind of need to understand how much this situation with Taiwan exists because of U.S. previous U.S. intervention in the Chinese uh, Civil War. It's something a lot of people don't understand how much we were funding Chiang Kai-shek, the Kuomintang party that fled to Taiwan that was fighting Mao. Um, and then the military intervened. Not, I'm not sure. I don't want to get into it because I'm not a history, uh, not too much of a history uh, buff on the Chinese Civil War. But I know that the U.S. military did intervene to stop an attack on Taiwan from Mao's forces in the 50s. Um, so... You know, that's part of the reason why this is so sensitive for China, this issue. And they they're really seems like they're not going to take this lying down and that they might really step up their response. Um, so the next one, this is related. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, accused the Chinese military of being more aggressive in the Asia Pacific region. Milley said, quote, the message is the Chinese military in the air and the sea have become significantly more and noticeably more aggressive in this particular region, end quote. So I just mentioned that in the article that missing from his comments is the context that the U.S. military activity in the region in waters near China, the South China Sea, East China Sea and stuff has really increased over the past few years. And I, I quote the South China Sea Probing Initiative, which is a Beijing based think tank. So I know what the critics would say. Oh, they're. They're a Chinese state-controlled think tank. You can't listen to them, but they track U.S. military activity in the region using, you know, open-source flight trackers and stuff like that. Just looking at these um, GPS maps and stuff. So they they put out reports. They started doing this in 2019. They put out reports on uh, U.S. military activity in the region, and they said since 2009, the U.S. Military activity against China has strengthened in terms of frequency and intensity, as they put it. Um, An example of this, in 2020, the U.S. flew nearly 1,000 reconnaissance sorties over the South China Sea, which that's a a lot. (laughs) And that's an increase in recent years. I didn't have the numbers for before 2020. Um, But in 2021, that number increased to 1,200. So 200 more uh, reconnaissance surveillance flights by U.S. military warplanes over the South China Sea. Just pretty close to China. I don't know if uh, people know that, but <laughs> and the U.S. has also rallied, rallied its allies to join in against uh, in the provocations against China in the region. Last year, we saw Germany, France, and Britain. They all sent warships into the South China Sea. And I mentioned the U.S. has also stepped up the deployment of aircraft carriers in that region. 
Um, and Millie, he recently ordered a review of all U.S. military encounters with the Chinese military over the past five years. Pentagon officials said he ordered the review in light of escalating encounters between the two militaries in the South China Sea. So, you know, it's concerning because you you think about the state of U.S.-China relations. They're lower than they've been since they opened up, uh, since Nixon went over to shake hands with Mao, uh, and they which led to the normalization. It seems like U.S.-China relations are at their lowest point since then, since normalization. So you got to think if an accident happened, two planes collided, um, which did happen in 2001 near Hainan Island during the Bush administration, a U.S. plane collided with a Chinese plane, killed the Chinese pilot, U.S. pilot landed on Hainan Island. You know, imagine something like that happened right now. What could that turn into? So this is the danger of all this military activity in the region. Um, the next one, we have an article from Bloomberg, which is interesting. It's about how U.S. sanctions have helped supercharge China's chip making industry. U.S. sanctions have targeted the export of technology to China that is needed to manufacture chips. And that has kind of sparked this uh, surge in China to, to work, work on you know domestic manufacturing of, of chips. So we see how sanctions often backfire <laughs> or do the opposite of what uh, the stated goal is, at least. Um, so the last one here, this is Iran. Iran says it foiled Israeli-linked attacks on Iranian sites. On Saturday, Iran's intelligence ministry announced that a network of agents with ties to Israel were arrested after enter entering Iran to carry out attacks on sensitive targets inside the country. Um, so... There's not really many details on this. The intelligence ministry, they said the suspects were caught entering Iran from Iraq. And they, they didn't say how many were arrested, what nationality they were or anything. It was kind of vague. But uh, I think it's important to highlight how active Israel has been inside Iran. Um, you know, this isn't just, shouldn't just approach this as like a basis, baseless claim. Because sometimes you see a country claiming that they took out a sabotage uh, some terrorists or something. And you're not really sure if you can believe them. Uh, but with when it comes to Israel inside Iran, we know that Israel is very active and carries out a lot of attacks. And this came after a, a string of mysterious deaths inside Iran that were tied to Israel, including uh, a colonel in Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC. There was an IRGC colonel. He was gunned down in Tehran in May, and the New York Times reported that Israel told the U.S. that it was responsible. And around the same time, an Iranian engineer was killed in a suspected Israeli drone attack on an Iranian military facility. And Israel was suspected of that one because it followed a similar pattern of other drone attacks that Israel was responsible for inside Iran. And Iran also believes that Israel poisoned two Iranian scientists at the end of May who died within a few days after falling ill. And there were other Iranians that died around this time linked to the IRGC or Iran's military industries that died in around the same time in the recent months. And they were labeled as martyrs, which indicates that Iran thought they were killed. Um, so it was a really big string of just mysterious deaths inside Iran. And we've seen Israel carry out attacks on Iran's nuclear facilities. And they usually do this kind of as a way to sabotage diplomacy between Washington and Tehran. And all this stuff comes as the talks to revive the nuclear deal known as the JCPOA are stalled. We know Israel is a, is a strong 
opponent to that deal. So maybe these attacks are an effort to kind of kill talks for good. Um, but that's it for today. We have a lot of good viewpoints as usual. We have an original uh, one from Chaz Freeman. Um, and we also have an original from our regular columnist, Ted Snyder. So you can check those out. And we have a bunch of other good stuff um, that we link to. Ramsey Baroud, another regular columnist. But uh, yeah, that's it. That's the news for today. I hope everybody is enjoying the show. Uh, if you want to support the show, best way to do that is to donate to antiwar.com. I know our fundraiser is over, but that's the best way to support us. And if you want to contact the show, news at antiwar.com. If you're watching on YouTube, you could also subscribe on all the podcast apps. If you're watching listening, you could subscribe on YouTube and Odyssey for video. And with that, uh, I'll leave everybody and I will see you tomorrow. I'll have some more news for you. Thank you.